it's great to be here with you all. I, I value Ripon, as you know. Um, you know, this is a strange time in our American political system. It's nice to have a group that takes its roots back to the founding of the Republican Party, somewhere in Ripon, Wisconsin, I think, and uh, keeping the the flame alive of you know what makes us Republican. So. Whether it's uh, trade, I gave a speech on the floor last night and introduced legislation yesterday on trade that I think is consistent with our values, uh, or whether it's on the market forces that we believe in that helps to improve everybody's standing in life. And uh, gosh, we've seen that here in the last year uh, with the tax reform, the tax cut bill, and regulatory reforms, and what it's doing for our economy. We've got a lot going that's very positive in terms of the Republican Party. Uh, and then on these other issues that Heather mentioned, really issues of the heart where the Republican Party continues to stand up tall and you know, I'm proud of the fact that we Republicans the Senate have taken the lead on some of these issues whether it's uh, the second chance legislation or whether it's the opioid crisis so we, we, have, we have a lot to be proud of as Republicans we got to ensure that we continue to go back to those roots and refresh them now and again my buddy Jim Colby's here who is all of the above from trade to some of these that said issues of the heart was as a leader and I'm blessed to have uh, an awesome staff. Uh, I, I hate to say this because I'm sure some of you come from great Senate staffs, but I can't think of a better staff on the Hill. And I'm not a committee chair, which means we have to kind of try to be involved in a lot of different issues. We're spread pretty, pretty, pretty thin and try to do them professionally, but uh, led by the Zakowitz, we managed to figure that out. So Mark uh, is here today. He would probably be here he was back in his private sector role. He only took an 83% pay cut to come work with him. <laughs> <laughs> and he for many years, going back to his days working for another Ohio congressman. Um, and, uh, and then Megan Harrington is here, who handles this broader range of, range of issues for us, uh, including our second chance and prison reform issues, and also the opioid issue and the, the issue of trafficking. We just had a big victory on sex trafficking recently that's making huge difference out there in saving women and children from being trapped uh, in this uh, horrible trafficking, which is happening, unfortunately, at higher levels because of the internet, the dark sides of the internet. And uh, the latest data we have is that between 60 and 80 percent of the ads that are, again, selling women and children online have now been taken down thanks to our work uh, with regard to the CESTA legislation. Some people involved with it. Megan Harrington had a huge role to play in that, and it affects saving thousands of Americans from falling, falling into this uh, dependency and this trafficking. So we're getting some things done, uh, even in this crazy political environment, and I really appreciate those, those two representing our, our great staff. What I'm going to do this morning quickly is talk about the opioid crisis, but in a different context than maybe you're used to, and I'm going to start with, with the economy. Uh, things are going well, the 4%. Mm -hmm. Growth, 4.1% uh, that was just announced for the second quarter is awesome. And uh, despite the fact that some are criticizing it as sort of a one-shot, you know, economic growth spurt, uh, it was not. Uh, thanks to Mark Prater and others, uh, we put together a heck of a tax reform and tax cut bill that actually will continue to benefit our economy because the investments are just starting. Yesterday, Larry Kudlow came and addressed some of us and uh, talked about some of the projections going forward. And I don't think we'll see another 4.1% quarter of this year, but I do think we're going to see more investment and therefore higher productivity and therefore over time for providing for many of you and your businesses and those you, you, you represent the opportunity to grow even more, to be more successful in the global marketplace. And that's really exciting. Over a trillion dollars has already come back to this country through our repatriation efforts. <coughs> Some of you know I've spent a dozen year, years of my life 
boring audiences all over Ohio talking about the importance of changing the international tax system and the importance of repatriation. It's actually happening now. Uh, this is really exciting. Uh, Paul Ryan and I have spent a lot of time on these issues uh, together, and it's you know it's heartening to see that there are serious changes now being made in our economy that are positive for someone who's making 40, 50,000 bucks a year uh, who can now see a higher wage. If you look, the new numbers came out yesterday on wage growth and even the quarterly numbers. We're seeing really, in terms of non-supervisory wages, the highest wage growth we've seen in at least a decade. So this is exciting. It's actually happening. The things that we hoped would happen in the context of tax reform. Added that is regulatory relief, which I think is Specifically because of some of the things that Congress did, as you know, through this Congressional Review Act, we get rid of a lot of bad regulations. But I think more broadly, it's a, it's a different culture from the top. And it is a positive culture, in my view, saying, yes, we understand regulations are important, uh, but we're not going to use regulations to punish businesses, particularly small businesses. Rather, we're going to help those businesses be able to comply with those regulations. That change is, is dramatic back home. So between the tax reform and tax cut efforts, which are really working, and I think we even work uh, better going forward as we have more clarity on the pass through this. And with regard to the regulatory front, we're seeing the results. And as Republicans, I think we ought to stand back a little bit and say, this is what we've been talking about all these years. You know, when you, when you allow this market to work and you allow the free enterprise system to work properly, uh, you, you see tremendous gains, and, and it benefits everyone. Uh, now, I will say that when John F. Kennedy talked about uh, you know, if you have a rising tide that lifts all ships, uh, he also, I'm sure, realized that there are people that fall between the cracks. And that's happening today. So when you see these incredible numbers uh, on the unemployment front, 4% unemployment is the most recent number, remember, it's not really 4%. When you compare where we are today to where we were, let's say, 10 years ago, in terms of our, what economists call workforce participation, let's just say that the number of people who are engaged in work in our country, uh, we have a still historically low, historically low level of participation. And what that means is that there are millions of Americans who aren't even showing up on the unemployment rolls. So if you go back to, again, 10 years ago, back to 2008, and compare our unemployment rate today to our unemployment rate then, based on the historic labor participation rates that were present 10 years ago and for most of our history. The unemployment rate today would be, what would you guess, with historic rates of participation in the economy? Heather? I told Heather, not Heather. 8.6%. Um, 8.6%. Now, if the unemployment rate were 8.6% today, do you think that we'd be bragging about it? No, we'd be saying, my gosh, this, this, is, this is almost double-digit unemployment. This looks like the late 70s. Why aren't we doing something about it? But that's where we are. So with all the good news that I'm reporting, and it is very good news, and for those who are working, those who are engaged in this economy, the wages are starting to go up. You see business investment really at historic levels, at least in Ohio. The business confidence is high. 75% of businesses in Ohio, based on a chamber poll a few weeks ago, are hiring this quarter, 75%. A number of them are hiring, looking for over 50 people. I mean, it's unbelievable what's going on out there. Uh, if you look at Ohio Means Jobs this morning, which is where we list our jobs that are open in Ohio, you'll see about 145,000 jobs open right now, ready to go. So there's a lot of good stuff going on, but still we haven't solved this issue of those who are in the shadows, on the sidelines, not engaged in work. 
yesterday at Kudlow uh, when Bush said he thinks it's between 6 million and 22 million people. That's a big range, but that sort of shows the lack of research being done on this. The best numbers that Department of Labor can give you is that there are 8.5 million men between the ages of 25 and 55 who are currently not working and not looking for work. So let's use that number, 8.5 million men between the ages of 25 and 55. These are able-bodied men in their prime working years. This is not about the baby boom generation retiring, which is what some economists on the left particularly have been saying. It's about people who are simply not at work. What are they doing? Well, you know, that's what I think there is not enough research on. Might be a good project for a councilman in the rip on it. <laughs> let me give you my assessment of it based on what we've been able to figure out. I think there are four primary reasons. And I think a lot of them affect everything that's been said here this morning. First, I would say it is the skills gap. There is a skills gap. There's no question about it. The jobs in the 21st century require a certain level of skill. So the 145,000 jobs I told you that are Ohio means jobs today, a lot of them are, are IT jobs, coding, for instance. If you're a coder in Ohio, you can get a job. And by the way, you can walk into a job making 50, 60, 70,000 bucks a year. And coding, you, know, you can learn how to code in 10 weeks. Uh, if you're a welder in Ohio, you've got lots of opportunities. If you're a machinist, go for it. I mean, people are desperate to find a mechanic to fix the machine that you know, makes the product in Ohio. Uh, there are lots of opportunities there. Um, so if you have those kinds of skills, you can get a job. If you're in the healthcare space and you have a healthcare skill, even if you're a tech, I'm not talking about you know even a nurse or a doctor, you can get a job in Ohio right away. If you're a truck driver and you have a CDL, there are literally thousands of jobs open right now in Ohio, millions across the country. So there is a skills gap here because many Americans just don't have those skills. This is why we spent so much time on the Green Technical Caucus trying to pass this legislation. We finally got it passed recently. Very little to talk about it, other than what Heather said this morning, which I appreciate. Um, but it's going to make a big difference because it encourages more career technical education and, and, and encourages more opportunity for businesses to work in this space. Uh, part, part of it is through more apprenticeships and internships and that sort of thing. But part of it is just getting the business community, including the people you represent, more engaged in the skills training. We have to do it. One thing that's positive, I think, that's happening right now, as you see in Ohio and I think around the country, more companies saying, no experience needed. That means they're starting to train again. We kind of got away from companies training, didn't we? And some of your companies you represent, including some big companies in this room, you would think have great training programs. Frankly, we're relying on the federal government to do a lot of the training, not CTE so much, but the worker retraining programs. And by the way, there are 47 of them spread over six or seven agencies, departments, and they don't know what the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing half the time. They're not very effective. And that's something we've also been working on with Mike Bennett, and uh, we need to do more there. But the, the point is, that skills gap is part of the answer. And I think we're beginning to make progress in can. Second, uh, I do think this issue of welfare to work continues to be a major problem. Now, as Republicans, we get attacked all the time for being insensitive to people who are dependent on government programs by saying there ought to be a work requirement. What we ought to be saying instead is we want to give these people the opportunity to have the dignity and self-respect that comes from work. And therefore, we ought to deal with the cliff. And it's real, because when you go from welfare to work and you lose those benefits and there's a cliff, there's much less of an incentive to get involved in work and take that sacrifice. Also, there's a tax increase. Now, one thing that I will tell you, if the Democrats had passed the tax bill uh, that Mark Prater and Marcus Ockwitz and, and some of us worked so hard on, they would be touting it 
as doing exactly that, because it actually does help. Three million Americans who had income tax liability as of last year, this year, have no income tax liability. Those three million people are people who are at the lower end of the economic scale, who because of doubling the standard deduction, doubling the child tax credit, lowering the rates, no longer have any federal income tax liability. It makes it a whole lot more sense for them from a federal tax perspective to go to work. Uh, because until they get up to a certain level, they'll have no income tax liability, which they had previously. If you're making 40,000 bucks a year, you have a couple of kids, your rates are substantially lower. You know, the benefits from this tax bill, this type what you hear from some of my colleagues on the side of the aisle, go primarily to folks who are making under 100,000 bucks a year. And if you're making more, let's say you're in the top 10%, of taxpayers, which is every single person in this room. <laughs> Nobody's here who's serving us this morning uh, in, in the room. Um, you know, you're paying a higher percentage. The burden of tax you're paying was about 70% before this bill was passed. Now you're paying into the 70s. 70% of the taxation is being paid by 10% of taxpayers. Top 2% probably pay what more? About 45%? And now that's higher. So this is a more progressive tax code. And it does have opportunity zones, which you're going to hear about. It sounds like a future rip-on event, and that's great. And we're looking forward to putting those and implementing those in Ohio. But the point is, we've got to deal with this issue of getting people off dependency to work. And part of it is Republicans ought to be, yeah, work requirements, but being sure that we are dealing with this issue of phasing down the welfare benefits and phasing up the tax burden so that people don't feel that cliff when they go to work, particularly with regard to things like child care, which makes it very tough to go to work. Third, second chance, felonies. We have a record number of people who are, have felony records out there. And it is harder to get a job if you got that record. And that's one of the issues that we're dealing with with the Second Chance Act and with other things is trying to help people to get to the period, to the point where they have skills training and they're dealing with their drug and alcohol issues, which is uh, unfortunately the majority of people who are coming out of the prison system today have some issue related to substance abuse. Uh, we've been very successful. We've been able to get grants out to the states. Megan uh, is now trying to reauthorize uh, our Second Chance Act, but it's been in place for 10 years. There's more that can be done in prison reform. We think we have to back it up into the prison system to give people the opportunity to get the skills before they get out of prison, deal with their mental health or substance abuse issues before they get out of prison, so when they get out, they have a chance of planning a job. But that is part of the part of the challenge right now in our in our economy. So when you're talking to your executives, you know, take a chance on a second chance. Give, give somebody who is in that situation the opportunity. I was at a place recently in Youngstown, Ohio, uh, kind of an unusual name, I think, but called Flying High, uh, <laughs> school, and they take people who are coming out of prison, almost all of whom have a drug or alcohol issue, and um, helping them, in that case in particular, to learn welding skills. Every single one of them are getting a job. And the stories, of course, are incredible. There is some there is some relapse, you know, some people go back to their old ways, whether it's their drug habit or, or whether it's criminal activity, but the vast majority of these, in this case men, are finding themselves not just with jobs, but really good jobs. And they're back, you know, owning their own place, back with their kids, getting custody again, uh, you know, back being productive citizens, and it can and should happen. And the employers I talked to in Ohio, and I, I now and again I bring together a group like this, of, Chamber of Commerce types or Rotary types, and I usually try to get somebody in the room who's a smart business person who's hired people out of a second chance type program and have them give the testimony. And it's inspiring because what do they say? These people appreciate the opportunity. They're grateful. They show up for work on time. Um, you know, they, they understand that you've done something for them and 
work ethic in this country. Sometimes people question, I will tell you the work ethic is very real for somebody who has not had a chance, you give them a chance, and just do some people wash out? Yeah, for sure. But I would tell you the vast majority of my experience, uh, you know, do have the, the incentive to perform, you know, given where they've been. So that's one issue. And then the fourth issue, which I think is the biggest one, and one that I think the business community is not acknowledging and therefore not as engaged with as they should be, and that's the opioid crisis. And of course it's related to the third one, the issue of second chance and prison reform. But I will tell you, the data is just overwhelming on this. And if you look at the Department of Labor study that came out recently, if you look at the Brookings Institution study uh, by the former head of CEA from Obama, by the way, they tell you the same story, which is that roughly half of the men I talked about, let's take the 8.5 million men, roughly half of those men are taking pain medication on a daily basis. Think about that. Roughly half of these men, so let's say 4 million men in America who otherwise might be working, are taking pain medication on a daily basis. That's not overreported, folks. That's underreported. <laughs> Both because of the criminality involved in this and because of the stigma that's attached to opioid addiction, that number is relatively low. Of course, in my home state of Ohio, where we're number two or three in the country in terms of opioid addiction and overdoses, obviously that's going to be higher. But let's just use the number half. What an enormous asset out there. What a, what a great way for us to help close that gap, the 145,000 jobs open in Ohio, the jobs open in every one of your hometowns. Every one of your hometowns, when you go back home, you're going to see help wanted ads right now. And you're going to see people who are showing up and can't pass the drug test, and employers will complain about that, as they should. And that's part of the issue. But the bigger issue is not the tip of the iceberg, which is people not being able to pass the drug test, it's the people who aren't even showing up to take the drug test in the first place. Because these men aren't even showing up. And it's not just men, it's men and women. I'm picking on men because uh, I am one, and <laughs> but also because these guys focus on, on able-bodied men. And when asked you know, further questions like, is this prescription pain medication? Two-thirds say yes. So it's not like they're taking a Tylenol. And, and this is consistent with everything you read and hear back in your home community in terms of the pervasiveness of this epidemic. We did a teletown hall this week, and as always, more than half the people on the call said they know somebody who's been directly affected. More than half the people on the call. And these are not self-selected you know, folks. A lot of seniors probably go on my calls who have nothing much better to do than to listen to a senator drone on about some policy issue. But anyway, 25,000 people on, on our calls. We did one in Southeast Ohio last month. Two-thirds of the people on the call. Two-thirds of the people on the call, they know someone who's been directly affected. Kind of a sleeper issue. But not in the hearts of these people, because they know somebody who's gone through this incredible nightmare of someone in their family or a friend or someone they go to church with or someone they work with who has fallen into this addiction. And the opioid addiction, as you know, is something that has not just taken Ohio by storm, but the country. And so the data is very clear. I mean, it's affecting everything. Your foster care system in your hometown is overwhelmed. I trust, I, I trust you know that because the parents can't take care of the kids. And so people are desperate looking for surrogate families. There are more grandparents and great-grandparents taking care of kids than ever in our history, I guarantee you. Uh, your criminal justice system, whether it's the court or whether it's the jail, is, is overwhelmed by this. Your healthcare system is overwhelmed, your emergency rooms. And so there is an opportunity here, I think, for the business community to step forward and do more. And I think it's in two ways. One, 
given this dearth of talent out there and not being able to hire people, is just to get involved and engaged in the community and come up with creative ways to get people back on track so that they can be part of your workforce. Two, it's much closer than that, is what are you doing at your workforce? You know, what, what are you doing to actually make a difference in your workforce? Because every one of you, whether it's Delta or General Dynamics or wherever you're from, all of you have opioid addicts in your workforce. And often it's tough to find those people because maybe they pass the drug test to get in and, and maybe you have no drug testing after that. Some of you have drug tests when there's an accident. But when you identify somebody with the problem, what is your treatment program? And most of the larger companies here probably have a pretty good healthcare system where they have a treatment program. Most small businesses do not. But it's important, I think, for everybody to figure out how, do you, how are we going to grapple with this? It's not just someone else's problem. You can't assume someone else is going to take care of it. What's exciting is that the work we've done here in Washington is beginning to pay off. And in my view, for what it's worth, I think we would have already turned the tide. And we'd already be seeing tremendous results with regard to what we have done, but for one thing. And that's fentanyl. Synthetic forms of opioids have come into our states, your community, in the last several years and overwhelmed the system. So in Ohio, 60% of our deaths last year were from fentanyl. When I go home as I did last week, and I meet as I did in Summit County, Ohio, Barberton, which is near Akron, you know, with the opioid coalition that's been formed, and you know, with Megan's help, we have formed coalitions and helped form coalitions all over the state. And what do they want to talk about? Fentanyl. Now they also want to talk about crystal meth and cocaine. It's not just opioids, trust me, but opioids is the biggest issue and the biggest problem now is not prescription drugs anymore, it's not heroin anymore, it's a synthetic form of opioids. It's so cheap and it's so powerful and it's so deadly. So, I mean, I'm excited because what I see going on is all through our state of Ohio, they're using the CARA money, about 500 million bucks of which is going out to the states this year. That's our legislation, the CURES money, and I supported CURES strongly. That was more the appropriators, you know, appropriating more money, around 500 million also, in very, very creative ways. And this is what we've been pushing is, <coughs> CARA was not about just pumping money out. It was saying there are some evidence-based programs that actually work. And again, the business community getting engaged in these communities back home has been absolutely critical, both to provide matching funds, but also to provide more of a business sort of innovative model as to how to deal with this problem. Because what's been happening in all of your communities, if somebody overdoses, what, what comes next after someone overdoses? One of your first responders, if you go to your fire departments back home, or in Northern Virginia, or in Maryland, you will ask your first responders, do you respond to more fires or to more overdoses? What will they say? Overdoses. Everyone of them. I mean, this is just, it's happened just in the last, you know, 10 years, or even seven or eight years. That, that wouldn't have been true. But once they apply Narcan, what happens to the person? The person can say, hey, thanks, I'm fine now. Wow. You know, you just saved the person's life. But in the vast, vast majority of cases, they just turn around and go back to the community they were in before. And that same first responder gets incredibly frustrated when he or she provides that same Narcan to that same person the next day in the same parking lot. But that's what's happening for the most part. Now with Care and Cures, what we're doing is we're changing that dynamic. And it's in three different ways. One is more Narcan. That's saving more lives. So in Summit County, which has been one of our worst counties in terms of opioid addiction, they've actually seen overdoses go down this year relative to last year. That's a plus. That's the, that's the turning the tide we're talking about. So just having more Narcan saves lives. 
but that's not sufficient. It's necessary, but not sufficient. What they also are doing are what are called quick response teams, where you take somebody who's a social worker, somebody who's in law enforcement, somebody who's a treatment expert, and after that person gets revived with Narcan, you basically follow that person to that person's home. And the results are amazing. I mean, you would think they wouldn't be let in the door, right? They usually are let in the door. I mean, the vast majority of times they're let in the door. And often there's a family member who's happy to open the door, as you can imagine. And the conversations are along the lines of, hey, you've got a real problem here. You know, your life has just been saved by this Narcan, and that's great, but now we've got to get you into treatment. And here's an option right now. Come with us today, we'll get you into treatment. We'll get you back on your feet. You can be reunited with your kids and your family and get back to work. And the results are amazing. So in some of these communities I'm visiting in Ohio where we talk about how are you using the cures and care money, 80% of the people are now at least taking that first step into treatment. Are they all staying in treatment? No. Again, some people are going to wash out. And you have to realize after a lot of relapses, okay, let's go to opioids. It's a really tough, it's a craving. It's a craving that is very difficult to get someone into a clean and sober lifestyle. But the, again, we have no choice but to double down on some of these more innovative approaches. Second, in these communities, including the one I was in in Barberton last week, great one in Columbus, now one in Cincinnati getting started, we have emergency rooms where people are being encouraged to bring people who've overdosed. So it's almost like an EMS for overdoses, okay? And when they're in that emergency room, they're immediately told, here's a treatment opportunity. In Columbus, uh, it's called the Addiction Stabilization Center, Mary Haven runs it, which is one of our nonprofits there. And they literally took over an old hospital that was kind of falling apart, fixed it up, 50 beds right there with an emergency room. So you have detox, which is the first step, and treatment right there. So there's not much of a disincentive because you can walk through the door right there and go into a treatment room. And you have treatment paid for if you can't, if you don't have insurance, which a lot of people don't, obviously. Those is being paid for by you, Medicaid expansion in Ohio, and Medicaid in your states, perhaps. But it is working. I mean, they are getting people into treatment who never before were there, closing that gap. The other big gap is, of course, between treatment and longer-term recovery, because a 10-week treatment, unfortunately, in this case, this is expensive, but it's, it's just not adequate for most people. For some people, yeah, it is. But for most people, there needs to be a longer-term plan. It can be outpatient, but for many people, ideally, it's, it's sober living, where they're surrounded by other people who are going through this, and they can then go back to work. And there's some great examples in Ohio. Tough to fund that. Congress had never funded it before, Kara, ever. <clears throat> now we're funding longer-term recovery. So my answer to the, the question when people ask me, how are things going with the opioid epidemic, is it's, there's a lot of positive. There's a lot of innovation, a lot of great things happening. But I will say, I do believe that we would be a lot further along. We would see better results this year than last year in Ohio overall, not just in some counties but overall, but for fentanyl. And we've got to deal with this, folks. And I know Postal Service is here today, and we've had some disagreements with them. But let me tell you where fentanyl is coming from. It's coming mostly from China, mostly. And I don't mean just like 51%, like the vast majority through our United States Postal Service, right into your community. And as you know, I, some of you know, I did uh, a year-long study of this in our subcommittee and permanent subcommittee investigations. We've got great investigators. We've brought in some cover people. We've brought in people who understand how the dark web works. We were able to go online. We were able to find exactly how it's happening and working, and it won't surprise you. People can go online today and buy fentanyl freely. And what do they tell you, the traffickers tell you? Send it through the post office. We'll guarantee delivery. <laughs> mm -hmm. If you send it through FedEx or UPS or a private carrier, we won't. Why? Because 
after 9-11, we required all of them to give to law enforcement advanced electronic data, big data, that law enforcement can then use to say, okay, this comes from a suspicious part of China, uh, this package doesn't look right, this is going to a post office box, this is going to an abandoned warehouse, we're going to pull that package off and look at it. And I've gone to their facilities throughout Ohio and I've seen what they do, and, you know, they've got rooms that have, you know, adequate ventilation, they've got suits they have to wear because this stuff is so deadly, so dangerous. And by the way, it is so dangerous to the mail carriers who are carrying the stuff. But sent it through the post office, you know, we chose in Congress to tell the post office after 9-11, we're going to make all the private carriers do this, but, but we're asking you to do a study. We're not going to make you do it. And guess what? I've never seen a study. And that was, what, 15 years ago. So our bill called the Stop Act simply says to the post office, you've got to do this. You've got to give our law enforcement the tools they need to stop this situation. Too many kids are dying. Too many adults are dying. Of the websites that we looked at, by, by the way, you know, we went on the websites and uh, through some uh, tools that only the Permanent Subcommittee Investigation has in the Senate, uh, through subpoenas and so on, we were able to find out some of the payment systems that were being used by some people who were buying these drugs online. And in particular, a couple of the financial institutions that provide some of these ways to pay for these drugs were willing to work with us. Subpoena power helps. <laughs> and we were able to determine, therefore, who was actually getting some of these drugs. I mean, literally, down to the location and the person. We provided all this to the Department of Justice, by the way, after we were finished. Because a lot of this is obviously data that was, you know, evidence of criminality. There were seven people who received fentanyl from these sources, 200 websites we looked at, who died of an overdose within hours or days of getting their shipment. Hmm. And these people got the shipment at their home. And some of them were dealers, I'm sure. Some of them were probably just users. Uh, because they actually tried what was sent to them, thinking, I'm going to get a great high here, overdosed and died. So this is what's happening. And my hope is that we'll get the stop back done. It, it passed the House recently. Uh, we've been pushing on this for a few years now. Um, and I hope we'll get it done in the Senate as part of this broader opioid package or some other issues that are going to be in that package as well that are important. But I think, although I focus more on the demand side, particularly prevention, treatment, and recovery, and I think that's ultimately where we're going to solve this problem, we have got to at least stop some of this flow of this poison into our communities. Because if we don't, it is so cheap, at a minimum we'll raise the cost, and we'll also stop some from coming in and killing people who are in your communities back home, who are here in the Washington <laughs> suburbs, and. Uh, Wherever you live, it's it's everywhere. Uh, so on that happy note <laughs> about what's happening, good and bad, uh, again, I thank Ripon for being a forum to talk about some of these issues. And as I told my colleagues uh, who are saying, well, do we really need to do this opioid bill this year? Why don't we do it you know, after the election? Take politics out of this. As Republicans, we should stand, stand up strong and continue to take the lead on this issue. And it affects us in a very direct way. It is hitting us at every level, including, as I said, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I suppose, focusing more on the business side with this group because of your incredible influence you have with your companies and the many companies some of you represent. I hope you'll spread the word because it is affecting our workforce and it is affecting the flavor force participation rate. I think it's the single most important factor right now. And until we solve the opioid crisis, get these people 
back out of the sidelines, back into the game, we're going to continue to have this sad gap and this inability for us to allow those individuals to achieve their God-given potential, but also to allow our economy to achieve its potential at a time when we're seeing economic growth, thanks to many of the, again, Republican principles that are being put into place that are actually working and pushing up against uh, issues like the opioid crisis and, uh, and second chance. Thank you all very much. It's great to be here. Any questions? Have to be here.